We have to forge a coalition of Americans of every background and political party. The advocates, the students, the faith leaders, the labor leaders, the business executives, and raise the urgency of this moment. Earlier this week in Atlanta, President Biden gave his most forceful speech to date, pushing for voting rights legislation. The White House says it's been a top priority for them this year. Because as much as people know they're screwing around with the election process, I don't think that most people think this is about who gets to count what vote counts. But not everybody's on board. And with a razor-thin Democratic majority in the Senate, the main thing that could pass voting rights legislation all comes down to the F-word, the filibuster, and changing it, basically. On Thursday, Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona said that she wouldn't support changing the rules. And while I continue to support these bills, I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division infecting our country. Without her support, it means Democrats' push for voting rights could be doomed. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao. It's Friday, January 14th. Today, will the president's tough talk be enough for voter reform? And later in the show, the literal unseen casualty of the supply chain. But first, voter reform. To help us understand what exactly is at stake, we turn to our politics show, Can He Do That? Hello, Cleve. It is lovely to see you on Zoom. I long for the day when I can see you in person yet again. I know. I've seen so many <laughs> colleagues under blankets. That's Cleve Utzon. He's a national political reporter for The Post, and he has spent a lot of time reporting on voting issues on the ground in Georgia. He spoke with Allison Michaels, the host of Can He Do That? And it was so good, we wanted to play part of it for you. The conversation starts with the two bills currently facing the Senate the Freedom to Vote Act, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. So each bill has a different set of parameters, a different set of things that it would address. But in layman's terms, or to put it as kind of simply as possible, what they would do is really stop a lot of the raft of legislation that has come out by Republican-dominated legislatures across the country, including in Georgia, that make it just harder for people to vote, that put additional restrictions on registration, on giving water to people in line, all of these things that were protected by the Voting Rights Act of 1965 would basically be codified into law and made so that states cannot have more onerous restrictions on the right to vote. One of the things in the Freedom to Vote Act would be to expand the different types of IDs that would be required. I was talking with some advocates yesterday, and they're talking about just the difficulty that, you know, if a student, say, lives in one state but attends school in another state, a certain ID is perfectly legitimate in their home state, but in the state that their school is in, it's illegitimate and can't be used. And so a lot of it is sort of codifying these rules and regulations and stopping insidious-minded people from imposing these really, really onerous restrictions. So then why is there unified Republican opposition to these changes? Both sides actually say the same thing. 
that the other side is trying to sort of unfairly weight elections and the right to vote in their favor. You know, Democrats are saying that Republicans are trying to stop people from voting and to take away this right to vote and to make it really, really hard to register, while Republicans, meanwhile, say that Democrats are going willy-nilly and don't really care about election security, election integrity, if that means that they will win certain elections. There's a piece of of voting reform that isn't in either of the bills we just talked about, but it has come up many times. Some Democrats are pushing for it, and that's reforms to something called the Electoral Count Act. Can you explain what that is and why that hasn't been included in legislation thus far? So the Electoral Count Act was put into place during Reconstruction to address a really, really specific problem with that year's election. But what Democrats and some Republicans are saying now is that that act has been abused, was abused on January 6, 2021, to allow some people to insidiously object to the results of the election. And so what Democrats and some Republicans are clamoring to do now is to figure out how they make that acceptance or the vice president's role in that more ceremonial than anything so that there is no sort of partisan bottleneck that exists to approve elections so that it's just ceremonial. This is what the people want and this is what's going to happen. And it's notable that what we've just talked about is not actually included in some of these bills that that Democrats are now very specifically talking about trying to pass as a result of, of filibuster changes. So can you quickly, for listeners, just recap what the filibuster is and why a change might help get voting legislation through? Sure. In most democracies, you know, majority wins, right? 51% of people, you know, decide what will happen. But in the Senate, that can be a little different because... A senator can stop debate on something by just threatening to filibuster, to speak forever, right? And it requires 60 senators to sort of overturn that. And when we have an evenly divided Senate, you know, 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans, it almost becomes impossible to pass significant legislation if just one senator objects to it and threatens to filibuster. So then in Biden's speech this week, what is he specifically advocating for in terms of filibuster reform? What does he want to see change? Today, I'm making it clear, to protect our democracy, I support changing the Senate rules. Whichever way they need to be changed to prevent a minority of senators from blocking action on voting rights. So Biden has said that The filibuster, which he has supported because he's an institutionalist, that the filibuster has been abused in the worst way to stop Americans from having the right to vote, from having access to free and fair elections. State legislators can pass anti-voting laws with simple majorities. If they can do that, then the United States Senate should be able to protect voting rights by a simple majority. And so that something needs to be changed. Now, the details and the specifics of how that change happens or what it looks like, you know, Biden is sort of leaving up to to the Senate. You know, it could be that the filibuster stays in place, but it does not exist or you can't filibuster voting rights legislation. It could be that the Senate moves to a talking filibuster where a senator would literally have to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and then talk some more as opposed to just three threatening to filibuster. So what matters, you know, for the sake of everyone listening is that 
you know, Biden, who's been a, a staunch supporter of the filibuster or, or the rules of the Senate, of the institution making its own way, is now switching gears and saying, look, this is this has been abused and we have to do something to change it. And he's throwing the, the weight of the presidency behind that. Now, speaking of throwing the weight of the presidency behind that, I think one important point of clarification here about presidential power is that he doesn't really get a say in what happens with the filibuster, right? Biden's influence in the Senate is, in fact, limited. So how much power does he really have to get these filibuster changes in place to help enact election reform if senators don't want to change the rules? Yeah, that is something that he and you know the White House press secretary Jen Psaki have, have both said, right? It's, it is the Senate's rule. It is their chamber. It is not me. But you know, the president is the leader of the Democratic Party. He is the leader of the party that controls not just the, the Senate, but also controls the House of Representatives. And what he says does have, you know, a, an inordinate amount of sway. There's also, it should be said, you know, a lot of conversations that are going on behind the scenes. Biden alluded to this in his speech Tuesday conversations with different senators, arm twisting or promises made or deal making. And so, you know, the Constitution doesn't give the president any power to change the rules of the Senate, but that is formal power. That is codified power. You know, what matters when Democrats put their heads together or when there's wheeling and dealing, come on, that's that's the power that that activists, that even some politicians are asking Biden to exert. And do we expect him to? I mean, he says he will. There's a line from his speech on Tuesday where he basically said, I'm tired of having these quiet conversations. I've been having these quiet conversations with the members of Congress for the last two months. I'm tired of being quiet. And so that's a not so subtle signal that Biden plans to be more public, more vocal about that. Now, he did not give any uh, specifics about what that looks like. You know, he didn't mention senators by name. He didn't say, I'm going to go to Joe Manchin or I'm going to talk to Kirsten Cinema." So it remains to be seen what he's actually going to do and whether he's actually going to be able to deliver. But we can expect a more public, a more vocal footing. Now, he gave that speech that we just talked about in Georgia, a state that I know you've spent a lot of time reporting from. Why has Georgia become such a focal point in the fight over voting rights? Oh, there's so many reasons. One is the history, right? Georgia is the home of Martin Luther King, of John Lewis, right? It is the historical home of a lot of our historical fights over voting rights. So there's that. But also, you know, Georgia is a a hotly contested battleground state. You had two Democrats sweep the state Senate seats last year, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. You had Georgia going for a Democrat for the first time since I think 1992, since Bill Clinton's first term. And so there's a thought from not just the Democrats, from, but from both parties, that Georgia is a state to be won. There's also, you know, Georgia is one of the foremost states in passing some of these onerous voting restrictions and at times even a model for other states that are sort of buying into the big lie and passing these, you know, voting restrictions that are stopping people from voting. Some voting rights advocates have expressed dissatisfaction with how the White House has handled a lot of this around voting rights. And, And some even question whether it's really a priority for Biden. What were advocates hoping to see from Biden and why do they feel let down at this point? One of the people that I've spoken with um, recently and over the last two or three years is Nse Ufa. She is a CEO of the New Georgia Project, which is a voter engagement, voter registration group that was actually started by Stacey Abrams. 
I've lost basically two years of my life. Um, and I love the work that I do, right? Mm-hmm. But campaigning in the middle of a pandemic, right? I won't shut up about the fact that in 2020, we knocked on two million doors in the middle of a pandemic, draped up and dripped out in PPE, while the Biden-Harris campaign knocked on the sum total of zero doors, right? I will never shut up about that. They made contact with millions of voters in Georgia, you know, knocked on millions of doors in an effort that really helped propel Biden to the White House, that helped Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff become senators and turning the Senate blue. And I asked her what she's going to do during the speech. And she was like, well, I, I don't know. I love a fiery speech and am here always for a, a clever turn of phrase. And what I will tell you is that we are in a crisis moment and that if all they are doing is coming to give a speech, then I might have some Republicans to be fighting with at that time. She didn't attend the speech. You know, she didn't boycott, but she basically said that she's heard so much rhetoric, so many speeches, so many gilded words, and that she's kind of tired of it just being words. There needs to be a plan of attack. What is the plan to pass voting rights? I never thought that they should have bifurcated it from Build Back Better. I always thought that voting rights was the priority. It was not treated as such. And now we don't have Build Back Better or voting protections. In eight days, Joe Biden hit the one year mark. So that means nine days before the anniversary of his inauguration, he's finally taking what some activists view as a strong stance on voting rights. You know, a lot of the Black voters that are impacted by these voting restrictions helped propel Biden to the presidency in South Carolina during Super Tuesday. They helped Democrats get two Senate seats in Georgia. And so what a lot of people have said is, look, we have sort of delivered for you. We put you and your party in power. You know, how hard are you working to sort of deliver on the most basic of American rights, the right to vote for us? It's not even me having elevated expectations from our elected officials. It's the it's the rank and file. Hmm. It's ordinary citizens that are like, not only did we show up in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic, and despite historic levels of voter suppression, I waited in line for eight hours to vote, right? Not only did that happen, but then we showed up again nine weeks later to deliver you a Senate so that you could have a governing trifecta. And that's why during Tuesday's speech, some of the largest groups that are involved in voter mobilization efforts, like the New Georgia Project, Black Voters Matter, they just sat out the speech. Some boycotted at Clark Atlanta University. Some just did whatever they would normally do on a Tuesday afternoon, just sending a message to Biden that there needs to be actual movement as opposed to a speech that helps, you know, rally the base or power up the base in advance of the midterms. You know, I could hear the frustration there in NSA's voice, and it it makes me wonder if advocates like her are feeling fed up with what they perceive is not enough action from Biden. What does that realistically mean for their organizations and their efforts going forward? 
it's unclear in part because I think they were waiting for Biden to to speak. But one of the questions is whether you turn your money, your resources, instead of to have turnout during federal elections, to have it more during state races. You know, maybe you don't invest money to try to flip the U.S. Senate. Maybe you invest money to try to flip the Georgia Senate or the Georgia House or use those resources in a more calculated way. Last year, we saw a really large national effort to have an impact on a nationalized election. And so their argument is, well, well, why should we put our effort there if it's not going to deliver results for us? Maybe we should focus on everything from mayor's races to county commission to secretary of states to local voting boards and all of that stuff. So that's one of the other things. But the other aspect of that is that these groups have sort of been a moral compass for the Democratic Party and and them just sitting out or losing the faith, growing increasingly cynical is sort of a sign of how other folks feel about Biden's ability, Democrats' ability to deliver. Yeah. To that point, do we have a sense of how much voting rights is a major issue for Democratic voters outside of these advocacy groups? Biden, Democrats, and the Democratic Party writ large have said that voting rights is the number one issue that they're going to focus on this year. It's been an issue that's been taken up by the DNC, Kamala Harris. It is at the top of her portfolio. Biden made the speech on Tuesday. So they're they're obviously responding to this belief that the fundamental right to vote is of extreme importance to their base. You know, it's interesting that it's moved to the top of Kamala Harris's portfolio. I think we've seen for the past year, many of the issues that she's been given to tackle are things that seem often like losing issues, right? You're not the first person to sort of ask that question. I think what the difference is that on other things, like immigration, for example, Joe Biden has been like, Kamala Harris, this is in your portfolio. You go handle it, go tackle this. Good luck, Godspeed. You see Joe Biden flying down to Atlanta on Air Force One and Kamala Harris flying down on Air Force Two. And both of them throwing their full weight of their political power or prowess or whatever behind this issue. So there is a sort of sea change in this moment that looks at like not just an issue that has to have a token attention to, but sort of everybody throwing all of their weight behind it. I have a question about this sea change, at least the timing of it. Is part of this pivot to voting rights a reaction to a failure to pass the Build Back Better plan? I would say that the White House is definitely feeling the pressure after the failure to pass the Build Back Better plan and the increasing fissures with senators like, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, particularly the the really public back and forth between Manchin and the White House. But I think there's also sort of a sense that this week was the moment where a week after the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, an attack on our democracy. Next week is the, the Martin Luther King holiday. Martin Luther King fall as valiantly as any American for voting rights. And so this moment, especially as we lead up to the midterms, especially as we lead up to sort of a question about who will hold power in Washington, seems to be just a key moment to highlight all of those issues. You sort of saw that in Joe Biden's speech, where he tried to put this fight for voting rights into a greater historical context. You know, name drop MLK. He name dropped George Wallace. Which side are you on? He basically asked of Americans and legislators and everyone else. And so there is this this sense that like all of those things, there's this confluence, this concentric circle of timing that Biden's trying to tap into. 
Okay, so last question to you, and and I think that the answer to this is perhaps we we don't quite know, but but it's really what happens next. Biden's used the bully pulpit to take this stance on the filibuster. So what are the next steps? We were actually just talking about this in the politics meeting, because I think one of the biggest questions that remains to be seen is like, are the activists who boycotted this right? Is the speech the thing? Is Biden talking to Manchin? Is Biden talking to Cinema? Is there some bigger legislative thing happening? We know that the Senate will vote on some of this voting rights legislation. Uh, Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, has said he he wants to do as much. It will put you know every legislator on the record saying what they want, you know what they believe in this critical pivotal moment. But one of the just biggest questions is just what is Biden going to do? Who is he going to talk to? What statements will he make? This vote, in large measure, is expected to fail. And if and when it fails, all eyes are going to be on Biden and what he says and what he does in that moment. All right. Well, we will certainly be watching that. And I know you will, too. Thank you, Cleve, so much for your time. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. Pleasure as always. Cleve Rutzen is a national political reporter for The Post. Allison Michaels is the host of Can He Do That? That's a post podcast about the powers and limits of the American presidency. The show is produced by Arjun Singh and Sharla Freeland, and we'll put a link to the full episode in our show notes. After the break, a surprising victim of the world's supply chain issues. We'll be right back. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Our big number is one. One episode per day, one story per episode, one really deep dive. At a time when the world is more complex than ever, On Point's daily dedicated conversation takes the time to make the world more intelligible. From the state of democracy to AI to the wonders of the natural world. That's On Point from WBUR, one podcast we think you should subscribe to. And now, one more thing. I'm Kelsey Abels, and I work in the arts section at The Post, and I write about museums. Kelsey has been reporting on an unseen casualty of global supply chain problems. The color blue. As in blue paint. And other paint colors during the pandemic. There was obviously the really big outbreak with COVID in India, and there they use oxygen to manufacture um, a particular shade of magenta, and this color haunts a yellow. But during the outbreak, they had to reroute the oxygen that would have been going to industry and reroute it to hospitals to deal with that crisis. So all of a sudden, it was hard to get these magentas and yellows. Last fall, a producer of the pigment Ultramarine Blue, which is considered true blue, shut down leaving the one other major manufacturer of True Blue with a demand that it couldn't meet. And, okay, it may seem like a shortage of blue paint is not that big of a deal. But Kelsey says this could permanently change the art that's being made and restored. One thing that this made me think of is like, if you've ever gone onto YouTube and tried to listen to a song that has been copyrighted, so they can't put the actual song on and they change the pitch of it slightly. And you're listening to the super weird version of the song. Asking an artist to paint with a different pigment is kind of like asking a musician to play with different notes, except for with a painting, the painting lasts forever, right? So you're not like replaying it again. It's like permanently playing the song with different notes. And so 
yeah, they could use different colors. And I'm sure in some cases, if they really can't find something, they would. But artists are really, really specific about the colors they use. I mean, that's why Vermeer went broke literally buying ultramarine blue. Um, during his lifetime, ultramarine blue was sourced from a river valley in Afghanistan and was incredibly expensive, like more expensive than gold. And Vermeer loved the color. And while most people would save that color, to, you know, to paint the Virgin Mary's robe or the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, Vermeer was just kind of like, putting ultramarine blue on everything, like putting it on people's shawls, putting it on a tablecloth, like doing whatever. And he actually went broke because of it. So like, I think artists are really specific in the colors they use and they can get really devoted to a color. And, you know, to not be able to have access to it is like truly like losing a note in a scale for a musician. I mean, it's it's really significant. And I think, you know, looking back historically, we can kind of see how the invention of different pigments really shaped art history. And so, like, you know, you look at the Impressionists and someone like Monet was working around the time of the invention of like the cadmiums and the cadmium yellow. And those rich, rich colors really were significant in being able to create his sunset scenes and these sort of like meditative, um, vibrant landscapes. And then when you look at Hokusai in his era, they had just invented Prussian blue um, in like ink form. And so there were a lot of printmakers who were actually making prints that were fully blue. They were just re-releasing all of their prints in blue because they were so excited about this new blue. And he created this 36 views of Mount Fuji, which are these landscape scenes that really, really engage the natural landscape and use color and water really significantly. And so you're probably familiar with the Great Wave, almost everyone is. And that work really wouldn't have been possible without the invention of Prussian blue. So when we lose a pig we really do lose a way of looking out at the world. Kelsey Abels writes about museums for The Post. The story was produced by Rennie Svernofsky. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are me and Ted Muldoon. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The Post's director of audio is Renita Jablonski. Monday is a holiday, but we have an important episode from reporter Julie Weil about members of Congress who enslaved people. You can look at a lot of issues through this prism of we started as a country where the people who held power were so often the same people who held slaves. And what does that mean for us now? I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back next week with more stories from The Washington Post.